0: Welcome, everybody, to the Good Data Podcast. For today's show, I won't be having a guest. Instead, we're going to have more of a call-in format where we take questions from data center managers and discuss their issues. Because of the nature of data centers and the whole issue of security disclosures and everything like that, all the questions have been edited and any identifying information has been removed. If you would like to submit a question for a future call-in show, please send them to gooddatapodcasts at gmail.com. We'll obviously obfuscate all your information in the same way. Also, this podcast is an open forum, so if I screw up and you disagree with something I said, uh, just uh, give us that feedback too. I'm always looking to hear about how I can make the show better. So uh, without further ado, let's go. Okay, now it's time to take our first call.
1: We have the 20 year old generator. Recently we had an event and our load transferred to generator. However, the UPS remained on battery during the outage eventually completely dropping our critical load. What happened?
0: Okay, that's uh that's an interesting call. I think there's probably more than one possible reason that this is happening. Um, There could be a problem with the UPS itself obviously if there's a bad relay or you know something like the uh, what is it the automatic voltage uh, relay if there's a problem with that then the UPS might not function so there's also the possibility that there's a problem with the generator that the generator voltage is somewhat low and uh, depending on what type of generator you have it's possible to change the output voltage or at least correct for it if you have a digital uh, controller on your generator then all you really have to do is get a generator technician out there and test it and you should be able to make sure that actually both the generator frequency and voltage you have to make sure that those are correct so if if those two things are out of like let's say you're, you're sending 62 hertz or uh something outside of the voltage range then your ups is going to pick up on that and it's not going to transfer and it'll just run out of batteries uh, now the easiest way to figure out if that's the problem is to look at your ups logs and Those should contain the errors, like if it says undervolt or if it says um, overvolt, incorrect frequency, something like that, you'll know very quickly whether or not that's the issue. You should also, if it is a voltage problem, you should be able to change the allowable input voltage, either make it, you know, let's say that the input voltage uh, is supposed to be 480, you can probably up it to... 490 or 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 drop it down to 450 without really hurting the unit at least for the time being until you get a properly running generator but either way there's something that needs more we need more information (laughs) i mean it's it's tough to answer questions like this where it, it could be a number of different things but uh my first stab would be to look at those things and and obviously my very first stab would be to check the ups locks alright next question
1: our data center is set up in a completely redundant manner with n plus n equipment and distribution but we recently had a complete network outage because of a firewall failure this happened during an event where the a side ups failed due to a blown capacitor we have redundant firewalls and redundant network topology. Why did we go down?
0: Oof, okay, so a blown capacitor on the UPS, that I've seen that so many times, that's just such a common issue that happens with UPSs. And it sucks because <laughs> you you know, UPS is at commission. Uh it can really cause a lar- large explosion, so that's no fun. Uh, I've never been in a UPS room during a capacitor failure or uh, uh, during an event where the blown capacitor goes off. I've known people who have, and it sounds (laughs) scary (laughs) as all hell. so I'm glad I wasn't there. But this isn't really, it sounds like, about a UPS failure. It's about a network failure that is based on lack of functioning redundant components. And this is uh, <laughs> this is an issue that we've seen a lot where a system that is supposed to be re- power redundant uh, actually doesn't have redundancy because there's some aspect of the network infrastructure that s- for, for whatever reason doesn't have adequate redundancy. So in this case, it sounds like uh, you're your firewalls are not dual-corded, first of all, which is common. For whatever reason, firewall manufacturers seem to just think it's perfectly fine to have one of the most critical pieces of equipment in your data center. Literally, one of the most important, uh, they they don't mind having those single-corded, which means that uh, if that goes down, you will lose connectivity. However, you said that you have uh, n plus N equipment, so if you have two firewalls, then it's probably that your firewalls my guess if it if it correlates with the UPS being down that they were both on the a or the B side of the electrical distribution that they're single corded and they were plugged into not necessarily the same plug strip but the same side of the distribution so, you know, during this capacitor failure, uh, what can happen is that because it's such a systemic failure in the UPS, the UPS doesn't actually switch over to bypass. So you actually lose power. And if that happens, and both of your firewalls are on the same side of the power distribution, then you're up a creek. You know that that really is what it sounds like happening. Now there are a couple fixes to this. One is to check your uh, power distribution and see if your firewalls are plugged into the same side of the electrical distribution and the easiest thing to do if, in that case is to just unplug one and plug it into the other side that might cause an outage but if it's your your lag unit your redundant uh, unit then it shouldn't really cause any problems um, you just probably still want to do it during an outage window but that's my first guess another possibility is that you could plug both of those uh, firewalls into like a rack mounted automatic transfer switch and those are not my favorite Uh, I don't love rack mounted transfer switches for a number of reasons one is that it's it can be another single point of failure depending on if the piece of equipment itself is a single point of failure like if you only had one firewall and you were to plug that into a rack mounted UPS, or I mean ATS, then you would still have that single point of failure there. You're not really fixing that issue because the ATS could fail. So I there you know it's not the worst thing. They they actually also have basically ATS plugs that you can get a plug that will plug into two power strips and actually has a uh ATS sort of within the plug. And those are good because the that might be a single point of failure, but it's just a single point of failure for that one piece of equipment. So it, it lowers the number of pieces of equipment and actually decreases your complexity versus putting a ATS plug strip in that, you know, then becomes that much more complicated. Uh, also, it's more in code. If you, uh, f- for the most part, most racks, um, it, the in-rack ATS would be plugging into a plug strip, which is actually out of code. You can't have a plug strip plugged into another plug strip. So, if you use one of these uh, ATS plugs, then you don't have that problem. So the I said that there were there were a couple of things to do here. Um, either one of those will work Uh, my general advice is to just always make sure that all the way up and down if you have equipment make sure it's dual corded that's by far the best if you don't have dual corded equipment then those uh, ATS plugs are a really good example of a workaround and then failing that you can do the in-rack ATS, Uh, and above all, if you have single-corded equipment and they're redundant to each other, make sure they're plugged into opposite sides. Okay, next call.
1: Our data center is excruciatingly hot when you first walk in the door. When execs walk in the door, they tell us that the room is overheating. We have downflow crack units, 24-inch trays, floor and cold aisle containment. How do we make it clear that the data center is designed to be this way and we are more efficient because of it?
0: This question. Okay, this is a funny one. I have, <laughs> this is, uh, this is even more of a problem with co-location data centers. Uh, I've seen a number of co-location data centers that have cold aisle containment, not hot aisle containment. And when that happens, customers come in and they get very upset that the data center's hot because they're not, data center people and they're not data center uh administrators and they don't know that in the case of cold aisle containment the hot aisle is supposed to be hot and basically the entire room is supposed to be hot uh there are a few ways that i've seen this fixed um <laughs> one is to just put uh vent by the door so that it is kind of cold near the door so that when somebody walks in, they're like, oh, this doesn't feel that bad. And, and most of the time when somebody's touring, they don't really tour the entire facility. They, they just kind of look at the things that they're interested in. And often that just means going in the door. Uh, you could almost make a, a path of of uh, vent tiles on the way to whatever piece of equipment people normally tour to. <laughs> I think that's a that's a cheat And I don't love it, but I've seen that happen. And, um, the other situation that I've seen is just putting a sign on the door that explains in the, in the briefest terms, hot aisle will be hot or something like that. You know, one line, um, Data center runs hot for efficiency, something like that. Um, so that then, when somebody sees it, you can point to it and it says, "Oh, this is on purpose." That said, I don't love cold aisle containment. Uh, I think hot aisle for a number of reasons is more efficient, better. Um, I, I could go into them very quickly. Uh, the the two big ones are that um, air conditioners almost every type of air conditioning system runs more efficiently when the hottest air gets back to the air conditioner. So the return air for the air conditioner is hot. When that happens, the coil is actually going to work more efficiently because there's a higher delta T across that. It just has to do with thermodynamics. And uh, keeping the hot out contained keeps that hot air together and ensures that It makes it more likely that the hottest air is going to get back to the cooling unit. Also, having hot aisle containment means that the entire rest of the room that isn't contained is the cold aisle. And that means that there's a very large volume of conditioned air that then, if there is a failure, if if there's a cooling unit failure, the cold volume... Will have a redundant cold or a, a remaining latent cold air that will then get pulled into the server fans and can, 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 can continue to cool the servers. It's not perfect. Uh, one of the problems with that is that oftentimes in a hot aisle, there's actually almost a choke point where the air uh, doesn't necessarily get to the return duct or the return plenum to get back to the air conditioning units. So instead of staying in the hot aisle, it'll actually just leak back out into the cold aisle. Uh, that's one of the reasons that I'm not always in love with in-row cooling units because that tiny hot aisle that is associated with a in-row cooling unit then really is not enough space and and there's really nowhere for that air to go so it will just return right into the servers themselves I tend to like very open return plenums that you know get the air to where it needs to go I like for cooling units to be high so that convection works with the flow of air so that the hottest air gets back to the crack unit and um, you have to make sure that if there is a return plenum that the space that is returning the air through you know if, if it's a ceiling return plenum which I could talk for a long time about why I don't love ceiling return plenums but if it is a ceiling return plenum that has to have very open exhaust grates so the, the registers that are in the ceiling to allow the air back into the ceiling return plenum have to be wide open or else the air is just going to get stuck in that hot aisle. And that becomes, again, that same thing with the in-row crack units. It just is going to recirculate right back into the server fans, and it's not really going to perform the way you want it to in a crisis situation. Next call.
1: Our current environment includes the following hybrid services. Tier 4 Collocation for PCI-compliant services, Azure, AWS EC2 and S3, Lambda, a few SAAS apps, our own enterprise data center and 31 different IDF and MDF rooms spread across 5 different campuses. Some of those IDF and MDF even have servers in them. We have a nationwide MPLS which we are currently transitioning away from to SD1, I have to support all of that infrastructure. Is there anything out there that brings all of this under one roof and allows us to manage it? How do we compare the relative costs of using each type of service for a given workload?
0: Okay, okay. That is a big, big, huge question and really the question of the moment in terms of IT. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know of a product that does what you're asking it to do. And I especially don't know of a product that does it well. Um, I don't think that the DCIM systems that are out there right now are up to that challenge. I don't think that the cloud management software that's out there is up to the challenge. And even if it was, it takes a lot of work to do the apples-to-apples apples comparison to figure out what the cost of each type of workload would be. Uh, <laughs> in, in fact, it's it, it's incredibly difficult um and i'll talk about a few of the reasons why firstly you have to make sure that whatever service you're moving to has all the compliances that you need for that given service so let's say that you you know you mentioned that you have a pci compliance component to some of your systems well you have to make sure that whatever service you're moving to is also PCI compliant. Uh, And then you're you're mentioning Lambda. (laughs) And, you know, Lambda is an architecture that, you know, it's a serverless architecture. So whatever you're doing on that serverless architecture has to be compatible with that type of service. It has to be written for serverless architecture. It's not as if you can easily port from Lambda to just a regular stick built data center that you have to have the everything in place to be able to do that properly. Um, I love Lambda. I actually think that Lambda is a big part of the future of where computation is going to happen. I think that it gets so much right in terms of prioritizing the right Types of incentives, so that uh, if you if you're writing code for Lambda and and maybe I should just define <laughs> Lambda and serverless. So the idea behind serverless compute is that somebody like Amazon or Azure or Google has a bunch of servers running. It's not as if they're actually not servers. There are servers running, and those servers are able to just execute code but for the person who's using Lambda or, or whatever service the the code is just put into a container it's, it's not as if you have to provision a server figure out how it works put RAM to it put hard drives to it you just have the code you tell it what it's going to point to and when it's needed it's going to be pulled into a runtime stack and then executed as needed so, that's a huge difference from just about anything else. Because in a cloud, in a in a normal cloud framework, you still have to provision something. You have to uh, say that there's a virtual server, or if not a virtual server, uh, some kind of container, or something that is going to run that code. Whereas in serverless, you leave all that server administration stuff to the cloud provider, like AWS or Google, and You don't have to worry about it. So porting from that to a server-based workload is very difficult. Okay, so another reason why it's difficult to compare apples to apples on this type of stuff is that you don't know how much it's costing you to run your data center, or very few of you do. Uh, You have to take into account everything, security. You have to take into account networking costs. You have to take into account... Uh, the power for a given server. And you have to amortize that over the entire data center and also figure out what the cooling cost is per server or, uh, you know, figure out some kind of rule of thumb of how much it's going to cost you to run that server in your facility. That's part of the reason it looks so good to go to cloud is that, oh, well, all I have to do is spin this up and I know exactly how much it's going to cost. And a lot of times that's a lot less than running your enterprise data center. And also it's probably going to run more efficiently in a, in a um, power sense to your, your data center because those cloud computing data centers are optimized to be about a 1.1 PUE. So you have a lot less to worry about. Now, <laughs> I, I think that 1.1 PUE is somewhat misleading because cloud almost by... Default or or might by necessity has to have more servers than are being used. So, those there have a lot of spinning disks and running servers that actually aren't doing anything most of the time. And so, there is actually a big overhead to that. So, when somebody tells you that cloud is more efficient, you have to kind of take that with a grain of salt. But pulling all this together the idea that you can do an apples to apples comparison of one workload running on one type of data center environment or service it is the 10 billion dollar question right now in the industry uh doing answering that question quickly and easily is even more difficult you know you, you have to be able to guess at your data ingress and egress you have to be able to guess at your san requirements uh but there are things that are making it more simple you know instead of having capital outlay to buy a san uh, or storage uh, storage appliance these days you can actually just um have a service, get storage as a service on site. So, uh, EMC or uh, 3PAR, you know, whatever other storage provider is selling storage, they will actually provision storage basically as a monthly pay as you go system, but the storage appliance is actually sitting in your data center. And what that does is it means that you are only paying for what you use and it can actually be a lot cheaper in the long term to provision storage. So instead of paying $3 million for an EMC SAN, you're paying $20,000 a month for basically the exact same SAN, but you're only paying for what you use. And per gigabyte, it might be more, but as you grow out, you know amortize that around how much storage are, are you actually using of a given sand piece of sand equipment it probably evens out and you're doing a better job if you have that storage as a service component Whew. so software to manage these types of workloads across all of your systems i know that there are people who have written software. Uh, I will do some research and try and put it in the show notes about if there is a fantastic piece of software out there that does all of this provisioning and apples to apples comparison. But I will tell you that even if that does exist, it's a lot of time, effort, and money to put that into practice. So man, it's worthwhile if you're a big company and you want to really hone that stuff down. It will save you money over time, but it will be a lot of upfront work and capital to make it work. So uh, one thing that I've done as as a consultant is give better data about that, try and figure out what you're actually spending on one watt of server load in your data center facility and then be able to put that spending number and actually apply that to each of the servers in the data center. And then, uh, I, ha- you know, I have done this, but <laughs> then you can figure out what um, what piece of software is actually using that piece of hardware. And then you can start to put a dollar value to that. It's a lot of work. Uh, We did it all in Excel because it was on a consulting basis and they didn't have any software and we were going to buy it for them. But if you were to take that and apply it uh, to a software product, it's definitely worthwhile. And then you have to take that same software and do some guesstimation as to how that would change if you were moving it to the cloud. Uh, It's a difficult problem. It is possible, but I haven't really seen it done well. We have to take a quick break please stay with us on good data today's episode is brought to you by green lane design green lane has been designing engineering and building critical facilities for over 10 years from small server rooms to major data centers for fortune 100 companies gld is also expert at computational fluid dynamics simulation mouthful uh, that's computer simulations of airflow and data centers if you would be interested go to greenlanedesign.com click on contact and mention the podcast and we're back let's take another call
1: we recently upgraded our server infrastructure and reduced our footprint substantially our PUE suddenly went through the floor, but mostly because we have so much less actual computer equipment in the data center. The problem is that part of our incentive structure is partially based on metrics like PUE. What should I do?
0: <laughs> Answer to this question is fire management. Uh, PUE is really not a good metric to base bonuses on, and I'll tell you why. Uh, for this very reason, you, your PUE is a fantastic metric if you're if you're basing your comparison of an apples to apples. You know this total IT wattage is comparing to that total IT wattage. As soon as the load, the IT load in the data center changes, that is going to affect your PUE and could very easily just throw it out the window. Um, It's not a fair metric. In fact, if you were to have a data center and make no changes at all to the infrastructure, but just keep adding more servers to it, your PUE is going to improve because all of the equipment up and down the infrastructure stack work more efficiently as there's more stuff connected to it. So transformers work more efficiently if there's more load connected. Crack units work more efficiently if there's load connected. Chillers, you know, you could even say lights because all the lights are going to be on anyway. All of the infrastructure just works better with more stuff. So rewarding PUE is just kind of a fool's errand. PUE is an imperfect metric. It is helpful, but it's definitely incomplete. And, you know, I like the idea of PUE for comparing, maybe comparing data centers to each other, but even then it's not quite fair. And... This is one of the reasons that I really am a proponent of modularized data centers and being able to basically turn parts of your data center off. That if you've been running in a large data center and parts of it are have been decommissioned, or well, no, if, if servers have been pulled out of your data center and you're still running all the equipment in that area, man, consolidate into a smaller footprint if at all possible and turn off a bunch of the equipment, you know, close off the raised floor, whatever you can do to get everything as small as possible and only provide what you need to provide if possible. It's a hard thing to do. It actually takes a lot to plan a data center in such a way that as it grows, it will be modularized. And as it shrinks, it will shrink Along with that modularization, because a lot of times there's just one server way out in Neverland in the corner of the data center that is running for no good reason, you know. And if you were just to move it, then you would, you could turn those crack units off. You could maybe, depending on how it's modularized, you may be able to turn a UPS unit off or something like that. It just, you I know, mean, that's actually almost never the case. But regardless, you can improve your efficiency by decommissioning. And I think a lot of people don't quite realize that. In fact, man, right now in the marketplace, everybody's moving out of their enterprise data centers or at least substantially reducing the footprint. And it's worth doing, man. If you can shut down 20% or 30% of your data center, if you can change that into office space, you're actually using that space If you can get your footprint smaller, then you're keeping the heat where it needs to be so that your crack units will run more efficiently. Uh, If you can uh, reduce, you know, if if you could maybe turn off a chiller, man, that helps. There are just so many different ways that you can save money by getting smaller. And I can't believe people don't do it, but man, I hope that people start to. All right, next question
1: we're migrating, we're a pretty small company large enough that I don't know all the application admins but small enough that I'm the only one planning the move I would like to decommission some servers before the move to save costs and to reduce complexity however none of the admins will cooperate what should I do?
0: (sighs) migration nobody likes migration and it's the most painful thing. you know. Ideally, you can just set everything in place and never touch it ever again. Um, as I've already said, that's not ideal for a lot of reasons, especially efficiency. It's better to consolidate wherever possible. And also, it's much better to do a soft move than a hard move. So what's the difference? So hopefully everybody knows this, but I'm going to say it anyway. A soft move is where you have two pieces of hardware and you're just porting the software from one to the other. So the great time to do a migration or a move is when you are refreshing your hardware. So if you're buying a bunch of servers, you can buy the new servers, put them where they need to be, and then you move the software and that way you can kind of have an active, active setup until such time that you actually do the final changeover. The problem with that is that it's a lot to do at one time. And so it almost never happens the way that way. It almost always happens that there is some kind of, you know, almost piece of server hardware that needs to move physically. Uh, it's getting better. I mean, if you're 95% or 100% virtualized on your applications, it's the easiest thing in the world. You just put in more servers, uh, do a soft migrate. Um, you know your hypervisor will handle the whole thing, and you don't really need to worry that much. But if it sounds like your small company, you still have a lot of physical servers. Um, so this comes back to a an issue that I've seen a lot with the friction that I see a lot of the time between server admins and data center admins, well actually application admins, so the application admins, like you're saying, they don't care about the physical part. It's not their job, they have, let's say that there is you know, a hardware fault, like there's a a hard drive that goes bad, Well, they care about that, but they don't care about where it sits in the data center. They care about what networks it's connected to, but they don't really care about how, what the wiring is or anything like that. So you have to police them, and yet management often doesn't give you the tools to be able to police them. So here's what I think. Um, You got to talk to management. You got to get an estimate together of what the ROI might be um, for uh, energy and um, licensing and warranties uh, of reducing your footprint. So earlier we talked about you know the difference between cloud and managed data centers. And two of the big ones that we didn't talk about then are the licensings for things like Windows or Apache or, you know, whatever software you have has to have a license and also for the hardware, the hardware is going to have a warranty and all that stuff costs money. So reducing the hardware, software, whatever it is, is going to save money over time because that warranty, you know, if you have to renew the warranty, it's a continued cost. And you know, the hardware comes with the warranty when you first buy it, but then if you've been using it for five years, the warranty runs out. You have to re-up that warranty every year, and that's a real cost. So you have leverage. Just remember that you have leverage as a data center admin to be able to strong arm, well, hopefully management gives you the ability to strong arm the application and server admins. And how do you do that? okay so you might not even know who the server admins and application admins are in your data center if it's big enough we've seen that before it's a real thing Um, in your case you're saying it's a small company but regardless what you can do is you can get a list of all the servers from Active Directory and you can get the email addresses of everybody who is able to access those servers in Active Directory. And what you do is you put a mail merge together or however you want to do it um, to send an email to each one of the people that you got their email address from and say, hey, are you using this server? Uh, If you are, let us know and we have to get an affirmative if we don't get an affirmative and we hear we don't hear anything we're going to contact you in six months and tell you hey we're definitely going to turn this off and if it still doesn't happen we're going to pull the plug you might not actually pull the plug but the more that you threaten and pretend to um the more that you can have some leverage on it you know you could you know when that time happens, when you threaten to uh, do something, you could actually just kind of close the port on the switch or or something like that. Just, you know, actually literally pull the the cable (laughs) from the back of the server. And if nobody complains, then that might just be an abandoned server that nobody's actually using. That happens a lot. It's a real thing. Uh, It's a sad thing you know but also if if that if you identify an abandoned server then it's fantastic because you have just saved an awful lot of money by being able to remove that server decommission it drop the warranties drop the licenses whatever is being used there so you know uh, that's my advice <laughs> is to take all the tools that you have in your arsenal including taking those active directory information and just reach out to people and take it by the arm you know strong arm them do whatever you can do okay next
1: question i work for a small colocation data center we recently had a customer whose servers were infected with malware that launched an outbound DDoS attack this flooded our traffic until we rate-limited their connection. We forced them to update their firmware, run virus our scans, and upgrade their firewalls. We're no longer rate-limiting. How can we ensure that this does not happen again? whoo
0: So this is a colo administration question, which is not my real backbone. I am coming to this from the design side more than I am from a server admin or colo admin type uh, understanding however that said um rate limiting and rate shaping for their port and and kind of hitting them where they deserve to be hit is a very good start um but it leaves you in a pickle because you have to at least somewhat trust that um, that this customer is actually going to do what they say they're going to do. And thankfully, I'm sure as a colo company, in your terms of service for using the colocation, you have very detailed, very expansive limitations on what they can and cannot do, which would include DDoS attacks, which would include... Spamming, which would include uh, copyrighted information, that if any of that stuff is found to have happened on their servers, then if you can identify who it was, you will shut them down. And it sounds like, thankfully, you do have those things in place. Uh, you can ask for their firewall logs. You can ask for their virus scan logs. Uh, you can... Ask for whatever other logs they could provide you to make sure that they did, in fact, update their firmware and did the virus scans and everything like that. And you can also save the the state of all your switching and network backbone so that if this ever happens again, your knock can very, very quickly run those rules again. Uh, Of course, you must be a small colocation cost company because the big guys all know. This stuff already (laughs) that they've run into this a bunch of times and they know how to take care of this. And a lot of uh, another thing that you can do uh, is there are services out there that actually have DDoS protection. You don't have to do all that in-house there. You can go to uh, level. Well, CenturyLink, for instance, and they can actually provide as a service DDoS protection um and it's cheaper than trying to build all that infrastructure yourself and in that way they should be able to very very quickly uh quarantine the DDoS attack and you know it's it's a it's a weird thing i think a lot of people don't realize that uh some of their you know, somebody in their data center could be launching a denial of service. It's, you're one of the distributed points that is launching that denial of service. And especially if you're working with a retail co-location that has a bunch of little guys, little servers that um, are not as well protected as they should be. Uh, especially, you know, these days... <laughs> you could in a colocation situation have somebody who's mining Bitcoin or something and they have really terrible hardware that is just a little Linux box that is incredibly open to hacking and suddenly, you know, without you knowing that they're doing this, but that could get hacked and uh, suddenly you're a node on the Silk Road or something like that. It, it's a problem. That's one of the difficulties about Colo is that, Unless you have very, very good rules and protections in place, your other customers could be affected. So that's why, man. Uh, I'll talk about this from both sides because not only is it the colo provider that you ha- has to think about this, but you, you know, if you're an enterprise or a company that's looking to put your stuff in colo, you have to look behind the curtains and make sure that the network administration is top notch on whatever colocation is happening that's one of the big reasons why there's so much consolidation in the data center space. You need so much backend infrastructure. You don't just need the tier four uh, electrical distribution and HVAC. You need, as a co-location, you need incredibly good network protection. You need incredibly good on-site security. You these days, you might need fences and cameras, and you need to have fantastic admins. And if a uh, colocation provider is also providing services, they need to have fantastic staff that's providing that service. Um, I think that it's incredibly important to look behind the curtains if you're going to colo, and it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, it's something that uh, I've had to go through and you know, you have to kick every tire, ask every question. You know, we had a, I think it was uh, like 200 questions in a questionnaire to these colocation providers. And, um, you know, that's why colo providers hate RFPs because they have to answer all those questions. But sometimes, you know, the good ones just have a boilerplate that they'll send you. So um, they're used to it. And I think that's all the questions we have this week. Um, that's great Uh, that's our show Um, thanks to all the people from whom I pulled information to put the question together for this episode Uh, again if you have any questions that you would like to pose anonymously please send them to gooddatapodcast at gmail.com I'd like to thank our sponsor Green Lane Design remember to mention the Good Data Podcast to get that free assessment that helps everybody Our music is algorithmically created by JukeDeck, which is pretty amazing. Try it yourself. Uh, Visit jukedeck.com. For Good Data, I'm Drew Farnsworth. Talk to you next time on the podcast.